GM, everybody, welcome to Lex Line. Generally brought to you by Carlo and Jenko. Jenko is out today with some IRL commitments. So I'm flying solo, but I do have a great panel of lawyers that came in to join. We bring this to you every Tuesday through Friday in conjunction with Rug Radio, where we talk about new and emerging events in Web3 blockchain and crypto law. And man, do we have a lot of new and emerging events. Nothing we talk about today should be considered legal or financial advice. As always, if you have a specific legal question, be sure to consult with a lawyer and do that privately. This is a recorded Twitter space. When you entered the space, you saw that it's recorded. So if you talk on this space, understand it will be rebroadcast and your voice will be sent out into the Web2 world. So I pinned what is one of the, I don't know, half a dozen major developments we've had today. But uh, the SEC decision and its implications with respect to this court battle that's been going on between LBRY and the SEC and the summary judgment ruling that was just handed down. Is it overstating it that this has tremendous potential consequences for the space or is this just a one-off decision? I'm curious to unpack that today. If you all wouldn't mind, give a retweet to the room. I think it's an important conversation for us to have. Birdnall's Metaverse lawyer, who wants to come up first? And I know that you gave a pretty hot take yesterday, Birdnalls, that you were you were pretty troubled by this decision and you were still unpacking it. So have you had a chance to to review the court's ruling? And what do you think? Is this a one-off or is this something we need to worry about for the broader digital asset ecosystem? Yeah, no, I mean, I've read the order and I read the briefings a while back and I got a chance to kind of go back and reread both the uh, library motion for summary judgment and the uh, SEC opposition the same. Um, and uh, I still think I am troubled by it. I think that this is still just one federal district judge, um, one order that uh, has very limited precedential value um, and I'm, I'm certain will be appealed. Um, and there's, this, is, this fight isn't over for that. But the, the thing that really stood out to me in this order is that it, it, read like, it read like they just took everything from the SEC's opposition and reworded it and stayed the exact same thing that the SEC it was almost like the SEC wrote this order. Um, and one of the main things that troubled me that it seems that just judge agreed with the SEC on, um, and that is also a common factor in the, in the Ripple case, is this idea that no matter what the project says about profits or the expectation of profits or what people can buy it for, use it for, anything like that, no matter what, as long as the project retains a significant portion of the coins for themselves, um, that gives a signal apparently to investors that this project will continue to develop on it because they have a best interest as the owners of a lot of these tokens to uh, develop uses for the tokens and make them more valuable. And that's where the expectation of profits come. And the, the order said that um, 
that uh, even if library never said a word about the investment opportunities, um, it is reasonable to believe that by retaining hundreds of millions of the tokens for itself, library also signaled it was motivated to work tirelessly to improve upon the value of the blockchain for itself and LBC purchasers. So essentially just by having a lot of the tokens, that was a signal that they were going to further develop and that people can uh, rely on them for the entrepreneurial efforts to develop the, the chain itself. And that's just, that's just not the law. That's just that it's been briefed by the SEC. It was in their opposition. They said the same thing in their opposition. Um, they say the same thing in the Ripple case. And that turns virtually everything into a security. Obviously, like if an artist uh, retains a bunch of their own art, that now is a security because the artist has a best interest in, in selling the art that he hasn't already sold yet. Um, everything becomes a security under that. And the only reason that you ever develop anything, whether that be uh, developments for certain types of uh, minerals, developments uh, like trying to, uh, trying to expand upon your artwork, trying to commercialize anything, obviously, as someone that believes in it and someone that's building with the product, you're going to have a lot of it. You're going to, like, if I'm building on ETH, I'm probably going to hold a lot of ETH because I believe in ETH at that point. There's no reason for me to build on it if I'm not also holding the same thing. So it turns virtually everything into security. Under that analysis, uh, Bitcoin is a security because Satoshi retained and had a lot of it. And early, and early miners and developers have a lot of it. And the people that are actively building the Bitcoin network and finding uses for Bitcoin also hold a lot of Bitcoin. So everything becomes security on the analysis. And I think it just really it jumps a shark on how, how we, which was as a good faith effort of saying, listen, we can't define everything that's a security, but if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck, um, has turned into literally anything can be defined as security because anything fits under how we under that, that logic. Yeah, I, I, Cannot disagree with anything you're saying. And I circle back to some of the conversations we had about the Ripple case and how one of the concerns that we had was this notion that Ripple um, retained a lot of the XRP token, if I recall correctly, and that that may be a factor to be, to be considered in the court's ruling. Just the breakdown for the people who are not 100% familiar with this and don't live and breathe this stuff the way the lawyers in the house do. This case uh, connects with a action that was brought by the SEC against Library Inc. Library is a software company that issued crypto asset securities called Library Credits or LBC. And it's essentially a blockchain variation on YouTube where they were basically launching a new technology where you could bring video content on chain. Pretty innovative stuff. The court... Uh, was confronted with a motion for summary judgment that the SEC filed. The SEC essentially is arguing that they launched this token as an unregistered security offering, and the SEC was seeking injunctive relief, um, uh, prejudgment interest, civil penalties, the whole litany of things they normally ask for in enforcement actions. This video sharing application launched and one of the damning things that the SEC stressed was a lot of the public facing comments that the team made about the future 
uh, utility of this token. And that was part of the court's ruling in granting the summary judgment. And what that means is the court basically said there's no issues that should go to the jury with respect to whether this is an investment contract and with respect to whether this particular platform library had fair notice before this enforcement action was brought against them, which is a pretty critical thing that we talked about a few days ago with respect to the Ripple case because they made the same argument and the court was largely not persuaded by, our, by either of these arguments. So going forward, is this, it's obviously not binding precedent because it is a single district court holding. It's probably going to get appealed based on the tone of the posts we're seeing from library team. Library came out pretty firmly and said, the language used here sets an extraordinarily dangerous precedent that makes every cryptocurrency in the U.S. a security, including Ethereum. Hyperbole, Metaverse lawyer, or are they onto something there? Yeah, no, I, I don't think it's hyperbole. Um, and but the thing is, it, you know, this isn't anything new. Again, it's it's just the first tangible order, you know, dispositive ruling on a case that involves these issues um, that we have to look at, right? Um, so really all it does, to go back and answer, I think your opening question, Carlo, you know, is this just, you know, like a one-off decision or is this, you know, a major development? I think the answer is yes, it's both. It's an and. It is just one judge and it's just that one judge's opinion, but it's also, you know, something that's tangible and, you know, everyone in the space is watching and, you know, wishing we could get some clarity, some, some guidance. And unfortunately that is coming in the form of one judge's opinion from, you know, district federal district judge in New Hampshire, who's 67 years old, by the way, I did a little background uh, research and, you know, who knows what this judge's biases are, um, what his experience might be with digital assets, with cryptocurrency, with Bitcoin. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into a single judge's decision that, you know, we don't know, maybe it was just, um, as I've seen comments, it's just a lazy decision. Um, and you could make that argument. Yeah, maybe maybe didn't really give a lot of thought to it. So it's like we're, we're all giving tons of thought to this every day. Right. <laughs> um, and so it's frustrating. But, you know, the judge has a full docket. This judge has lots of other cases on all kinds of other subjects coming in front of him. And, you know, maybe he was just kind of deferring to you know, trusted that the SEC is making reasonable and fair arguments. Got a view. I don't know anything about this judge, of course, but, you know, a lot of judges side with government fairly regularly, and it's tough to, tough to beat the government, right? Um, so, you know, I, as far as, you know, to go back to your question about, you know, does this make Ethereum a security? Obviously, we know it doesn't. There's no binding precedent created here. Um, but it's certainly something that as we talk to clients, um, they want to know, you know, what do I do to avoid SEC scrutiny or what do I do to make sure I'm not a security? This is just a, a tangible example of what I've always been telling people, which is, you know, there's really no way you can guarantee that you're not a security. You know, you, well, you could go offshore, you could go to another country, you could not offer uh, any tokens or any NFTs or whatever it is, um, not offer any to like retail customers in the United States. 
Uh, make sure you fall within an exception to the security regulations that will force you to, to register. Um, so that hasn't changed. It's the same thing you have to do if you really want to guarantee that you don't come under the SEC's um, under their regulations, then, you know, go somewhere where they don't have jurisdiction and don't do anything that would give them jurisdiction. But I mean, that's pretty drastic. I think in general, it's just uh, more, more of the same. We have to just be careful and continue to act in good faith and um, it make the best arguments we can as lawyers to try to push back on in areas where we disagree with maybe the way that uh, the SEC is trying to define things. Well, what's interesting, too, about this is I'm looking in uh, the court docket system, PACER, and this lawsuit was brought, this complaint was brought back in March of 2021. And this case essentially, as far as I can see, did not really draw a lot of attention in the space the way the Ripple case did. You saw, you saw an outpouring of amicus briefs that were filed in support of Ripple. And we've talked about those amicus briefs and how they made very compelling arguments in support of Ripple's case. I'm looking in the docket history on this case, and I don't see that a single amicus brief was filed by any lawyer or outside advocacy group in this one. And was this a missed opportunity because we all were so hyper-focused on the importance of the Ripple case for the space. And then this case comes out of nowhere. And this district court ruling out of the uh, district court in New Hampshire, of all places, has sort of teed up the first appealable case that I think has the potential to you know, possibly go all the way to the Supreme Court and really draw some serious lines on what digital assets are what the common enterprise notion should be defined as. And did this largely just sort of fly through the ether without the court maybe getting a full spectrum of briefing on this? Um, I'm going to bring Ira up to talk, but I'd love someone to answer that if, if you have any thoughts on that while I welcome Ira up. So two big things in this case that were important that I guess the only the big thing about this case is that it really only focused on two aspects of what we're kind of dealing with as far as digital assets and whether they can be investment contracts. And the main thing was one, this was the first one that didn't have a uh, ICO. Um, they had anyone could mine library. They pre-mined a bunch of coins and they sold some of those pre-mined coins, but anybody could mine library in the same way that anyone could mine Bitcoin or Ethereum or things like that. So that's one of the issues with this. And the other one is this consumptive use. We, we talk about utility tokens um, versus governance tokens and all of that is based off of uh, kind of a Supreme Court case that uh, is named Foreman, where the, the, the Supreme Court said that if you have a consumption, a consumptive purpose for the, the item that is being uh, labeled a security, it's not a security. So Foreman, I believe, was condos, and you could, it's almost like a timeshare. You could, you could get access to these condos or timeshares, but they were, they were primarily for consumptive purpose, for actually going and visiting them. So that, the big things are just one. This was the first non-ICO, and the reason there wasn't a whole lot of briefing on this and lots of amicus is that I don't think LBR was ever really sold as widely as Ripple was, as XRP, I mean, was. 
And it also wasn't offered on lots of the major exchanges um, like uh, XRP was. So you don't have like the Coinbase's or the FTX's or any of these other uh, marketplaces that have a best interest in something not being deemed a security. Those don't have the same best interest because they never offered them on their platform. Well said. E. Rich, welcome. You've got your hand up. Then I'd love to hear from Ira. What do you think about uh, this case and what it means going forward for digital assets? Arguably, if you extrapolate what this court is reasoning here, then all the communications that projects have about uh, the utility they want to bring on board and these expectations of what the projects will do with these NFTs could be thrown in their face and could suggest that there's a common enterprise and an expectation of profit. Uh, What do you think? Well, thanks. So I'm looking at this from just an outside the outside the crypto sphere uh, perspective, just from base and general attorneyness. And my question really is, or thoughts are more, is that having something in order to appeal is a good thing in general because it gives guidance. So I would ask you guys what, or the reason I raised my hand is, what opportunities on appeal are they going to have an arguments to make? I guess in support that could ha- actually be beneficial to the space or is this because it was so narrowly focused going to be actually a problem I think generally speaking not resting all our hopes in one opportunity is a good thing as far as looking for um, guidance from the courts and that's that's kind of all I wanted to put out there no good good question Um, before I hand it to Ira you know unfortunately the thing about appeals is they're wonderful because they give you a second shot but the record's essentially closed so you can't really expand the record. There, there may have been, and we can all Monday morning quarterback about additional arguments that should have been made, and maybe they should have pushed more on some of these elements than they did. It's, it's easy to do that from our perspective, um, but I don't know. It's going to be de novo review, which means the court will take a fresh look at it. Motions for summary judgment, like motions to suppress, are... are you know, they can be dispositive like this one was obviously because this essentially said that there's nothing to take to the jury. So I think on appeal, an appeal court would look very carefully. They do afford a lot of discretion to the district court in its in its justification and its its ruling. However, because it is, it's an absolute killer of the case. It it, it certainly is going to get scrutiny by an appellate court. Ira, what are your Real thoughts quick, on can, this? Yeah, absolutely, Rich. Can just fo- a follow-up. Um, from my understanding of the opinion, the judge doesn't do a lot of analysis in the same way that you would – I mean, in, in the Beanie Babies. Is this, <laughs> anyway, my, my point is, is that I feel like that would be, again, from I'm, I'm just a normie lawyer perspective, would be a good opportunity to at least have some, some opportunity on – you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm not. Oh yeah, look, I, I think I think there can be expansive briefing on the arguments that were made, and I think there will be, and I think the transcript of the hearing will certainly give uh, give the arguments on appeal uh, some additional uh, opportunities to expand. You mentioned this notion of beanie babies. For those who don't know, I don't have the transcript, but I've seen it tweeted that the court gave an analogy to Beanie Babies being an investment contract in its analysis of this case in the hearing transcript. I think those are things that certainly 
will be built upon in making a case against this ruling. So, yeah, I'm curious. Ira, you, you had a chance to unpack this. Welcome to the house. I appreciate you joining us. What are your thoughts? Good morning for folks on the West Coast of the United States. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I read it. Um, I've actually had cases in that exact courthouse um, to give everyone some hope. Um, I had a case where they construed the CDA immunity in California in the Ninth Circuit different in the First Circuit. And there was a circuit split. So, and then, you know, I, I, you know, I like did one case in California and the federal courts there did another one in New Hampshire. I got two opposite results regarding the degree of CDA immunity for an ISP. And so there's circuit splits all the time. This is a federal district court case. It is citable, which is means it's going to create annoyance for defense lawyers going forward. And the, algorithm i like to call it algorithm the algorithm that's used in the case is simple nice and easy for folks from the sec and and, and others to use in other cases and so in terms of just pragmatism and being in the trenches it's a wonderful case for folks who want to call something a security and it's a difficult case for defense lawyers now i get a lot of the nuances um, and I know that good defense lawyers will be able to make arguments, you know, and I understand that there's less than all the issues at issue, but still, just like in any other area of the world, <laughs> when you're a defense lawyer, sometimes when you're explaining, you're losing. And so this is a very, very, very simple case. And the metaphors are perfect. You can, you could take the quotes from this case and do what a lot of my colleagues who are excellent legal writers do. And they just put in, they take the exact quote and they put in the facts of their case. And you could start arguing everything from ape coin to any other altcoin is going to be, you know, even a worse fact pattern. You're giving and, away all our secrets, Ira. You know, and so it's kind of, I've been the subject of this and we've done it, you know, both sides of it. All right. We're in a, we're on Lex line, so we're amongst friends and colleagues, and, and it's a think tank. And, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out just how much trouble this kind of case could make. Now, having said all that, we're still at the federal district court level. There could be a split all over the United States of America. It is not going to be binding outside of that courthouse, at least for legal nerds, but it will be persuasive. I mean, if you go down, you know, down the highway, I used to go to school in New England. I went down the highway back to New York where I used to live, where I grew up. And then you're in the Second Circuit, and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll often cite these federal district court opinions up in the First Circuit. Um, New Hampshire is, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a decent place. So that's the, the pragmatism of it all. It gives us both hope and it gives us challenges as lawyers. Um, in terms of the overarching thing, these cases are hard, okay? You know, the optics of these cases really is well-suited for folks who are prosecutors or plaintiffs. Why? I mean, why? I mean, you know, look, I've, I've seen it over the last, I don't even know how many years, even before the ICO era, where, you know, they just spin this pinwheel 
and it includes things that are in this case, it's like, well, if this coin has utility, and the utility is for fill-in-the-blank gains, then why is it that that venture capitalist needs $25 million worth of whatever these tokens are? They're going to be doing a lot of game playing, and they get up in front of a court or a jury or a regulator, and they say, boy, I never knew VCs love playing games so much, or lawyers enjoy playing games so much. You're just really a big-time game player, aren't you? Um, and, and so... And then they, you know, it's it's usually, frankly, crowdfunding. And then they use it as a currency, as a way to go ahead and build. And then folks try calling it something else. And as Bernals was pointing out earlier, you have multiple uses, including consumptive use. And then the question would be, where in this gestalt standard is there room to basically say, that it's not a security, even in multiple-use situations. And this case seems to be saying that there could be multiple uses, and you still lose when at least there's weighty use of something that's being used for de facto crowdfunding. And that is the problem that we have right now. And everyone's fact pattern will be different. But if we ever go to you know folks who give this to us, to, where we do it for a living, and we get access to their emails, and we shove stuff into our little e-discovery systems and do searches. Uh, unfortunately, in the vast, vast majority of times, you're going to see all sorts of deal-making on allocation prior to whatever you want to call an ICO these days. Uh, people saying, listen, you know, I'll charge you less if you give me more coin. VCs wanting coin. And folks using it for non-consumptive purposes all over the place. And that would fit well if it stands up on appeal with the notion that you don't have to say anything to society if you structure things in a certain way where it's basically de facto crowdfunding. So that's my diatribe for the morning. No, all well said. I want to I kick it to Josh, who's in the house as well to speak. But I, I pinned up a, a tweet thread that Professor Brian Fry made about this ruling and kind of following along the lines what Bergdahl said that it, it, it seemed like it was kind of just adopting the SEC's arguments. I've, I've experienced this frustration in doing uh, post-conviction work where we have to propose findings of fact and conclusions of law to the court, and both sides are essentially given that opportunity to draft their proposed findings. And I, I get frustrated in the process because I generally see that the government's findings are usually the ones that are verbatim adopted in the orders denying relief. So I feel Burdenall's frustration. And, and Brian sort of touches on that where he says that in my humble opinion, what really happened here is the SEC told the court, quote, we think this is a security and we want to regulate it, end quote. And the, and the court just shrugged. Um, you know, I think what we learned from this case is that a lot of the, the semantics and a lot of the mental gymnastics that we uh, tend to worry about with how things are phrased in the space and how things are represented appeared to have been largely irrelevant to the court in this case in its analysis. I'm not suggesting the court rubber stamped what the SEC argued, but it does appear the court was largely uh, was largely not concerned about the semantics, but was more concerned about how the investors may have perceived. Josh, you had a chance to look at this thing, and as an artist in the space, 
um, as Bernal's had said, if you hold back tokens, uh, if you hold back work, are you now a security? Jam everybody. Um, in all fairness, I haven't read the decision in full yet. I'm, I'm relying heavily on uh, our, our wonderful compatriots in here and, and just reading up on specifics. I have seen clips. Me as an artist and for artists, to your point, I'm not, I'm not overly concerned. Uh, I, I think part of the reason why I'm feeling a little bit better about it today versus yesterday is the initial emotional aspect has worn off. But as we all know, and as it's been spoken about to, you know, the extreme here, it is one decision in one court. We know it could have end up having large precedents and it could have end up having no precedents. But one of the benefits I'm seeing now is some of the arguments or some of the decisions in the order are legitimately outrageous. I mean, they're just they're nonsensical when you look at the reality of the markets. So that's good and bad. It's bad that that's out there and is potentially precedent. It's good, and now it has all of our eyeballs on it. We're all looking at it. We're all scrutinizing it. And this one kind of flew under the radar, maybe because they weren't kind of battling on every single issue. You know, they kind of sailed through it, and they agreed to some of the, the issues. And, maybe you know, we're not, I'm not going to... I'm not going to uh, hindsight it. You know, I mean, they made their decisions. It is what it is. But maybe that's why it sailed through. But now we're looking at it. And now we get to build off of it. And if this is what the SEC is arguing and this is what a court found, we have the ability as attorneys. Now is the time to turn up the heat, dive in even deeper and point out how ridiculous this is because artists aren't withholding or I should say most artists in my experience from dealing with them and from studying them through history don't withhold art. Because they think it's going to go up in value and they're going to make $30 million next year. They just don't do it. They don't withhold the art so that they can boost their brand and, and boost their collector's value and then sell it. They withhold their art because A, they love it. B, they, they, have, they, don't, they want it to go to the right place. They don't know what they want to do with it. Maybe they're going to paint over it. They just don't know. It's not an economic decision. Now, is that true for all artists? No, of course not. But when you start to break it down in the real world, how it affects an entire industry of people, a growing industry of people, I would suggest, as you know, tech kind of eats up a lot of jobs, culture is more and more important, as I personally think it, it maybe should be. It helps us come together. So it really, I, I think it just looks ridiculous when you apply it to the real world. This is a case about a token and about a company with receipts that said some things and maybe they shouldn't have said. And that's true. But we can take out the really bad parts and the really obscene parts and break them down from a legal perspective and use that as ammunition going forward. Maybe if I'm being optimistic, I don't know. I have no way of knowing what's going to happen. I could definitely see it going all downhill, but maybe it's a pyrrhic victory for the time being. And in the long run, it's going to actually end up being detrimental to the SEC because their arguments are going to get found out now that they're reality, at least in one jurisdiction. All great points. You know, it's a challenging time for the space. Um, in a matter of 24 hours, we've seen this case come down. We've seen the open sea debate dominate with respect to royalties and how if royalties disappear, could this be uh, the end of NFTs and could creators be really disincentivized to continue to support projects that have been launched? And then we saw this FTX uh, thing in real time just totally unravel and Binance swoop in and save their marketplace. It is a, it's, it's a frenetic pace in the space. 
I think the takeaway, and I definitely want to hear from Texas blockchain lawyer. I'm glad that you could join us. I know you posted you had some conflicts, but you wanted to come hang with us. So I'm glad you're here. I think you're right, Josh. I think this does give an opportunity now to reset the narrative. And although we didn't see any amicus briefs get filed in this case in response to the summary judgment, I can fully expect we're going to see a deluge of amicus briefs come in when this goes up on appeal to the First Circuit, because I think there's just too much on the line to let this order dictate and sort of be the template, as Ira described, of where you're just going to cut and paste the language and replace the token name with the next thing that's in the line of sights for regulatory enforcement. I think there's just too much on the line to let this opinion uh, go without pushing back and arguing vehemently with respect to the, the factors in Howie and really putting it in the First Circuit's lap to have to confront those arguments. Texas blockchain lawyer, uh, what do you think about this development? Is this a one-off or is this, is this something we really need to worry about for digital assets going forward? So thanks for having me up. And yeah, like you said, I'm heavily multitasking today. Um, but I apologize if some of this has already been stated because I, uh, I had to kind of come in at uh, a, a later time in the discussion. But um, I mean, I think from a legal standpoint, Gabriel Shapiro probably said it best, right? It's dicta uh, in a lot of respects. Um, you know, it's not going to be controlling um, con a controlling opinion. But my biggest concern here is the chilling effect. Um, I think it's going to lead a lot of specifically responsible founders to hesitate to launch a token or to launch a project. And my fear is that it's going to be those DGEN founders, you know, looking for a quick buck or maybe even planning a rug pull. They either won't know about this opinion or they won't care about it. They're going to launch something that's going to be a black eye on the space and it's going to be further fodder for the crypto skeptics in power and it's just going to feed into that narrative that is sort of my main concern in this whole ordeal and then again it goes back to the fact that you know if we continue down this path in the u.s we're just going to bleed talent in the crypto space and you know folks who leave u.s I mean, they're going to go to portugal they're going to go to switzerland they're going to go to singapore they're going to go to all those jurisdictions that have more favorable um, regulatory scheme and, uh, and it's going to be our loss in the long run yeah, look, one thing we have to collectively hope is that this opinion does not get back to our families before Thanksgiving, because we already have to deal with the fact that we were pumping ETH a year ago to our family members, and look what happened there. Um, you make great points, Texas blockchain lawyer. Josh, you had your hand up. What are your thoughts? Well, Josh may have a little trouble coming up. Uh, I, got, I got a question. Yeah, I got yeah, a I'm, question. I'm, oh, oh, my I bad. got a question. Hey, no, Josh, you, you, whoever wants to answer it, I want to. I really want to hear because I've been thinking about it and I don't have an answer. But uh, right now we have a motion for summary judgment ruling on what I'll just call liability. Typically, what ends up happening at a status conference, and I'll tee this question up for you, is the the team that loses goes there and says, hey, can we have an interlocutory appeal so we don't have to wait? Why go through a remedy phase? Let's just go ahead and get an interlocutory appeal. I don't know if they'll do that or not. My question is, um, what do you think 
the remedies will be right here. And in a jaded way, as part of that, if the goal of the SEC is to look out for the society, the users, the de facto investors, um, would they really be doing more harm than good if they if they basically just eviscerated whatever the investment was to zero? Um, or is there any possibility, does anyone think, that there could be a remedy that notwithstanding the, the draconian nature of the liability findings that are less than shutting it down? I think ASCC is in a tremendous tactical advantage here that they got what they wanted and I don't see where they have any room to compromise here. I think, in my opinion, they'd want to push forward and they'd want to get this precedent established in a circuit court appellate decision. Um, it's an interesting question you have about interlocutory. Procedurally, I'll defer to some of the more nuanced civil practitioners in the room on that question. Um, anyone have any thoughts on Ira's question? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I feel like if I'm the SEC, I would want to offer a mea culpa or, uh, you know, hey, let's hug and make up. Um, we'll find you and then register and we'll we'll let you go through in some way. I, I feel like then they start showing to founders, you know, don't worry about it. Yeah, it's expensive. It's fine. Just just come register with us. It's OK. We'll, we'll regulate you nice and easy. I think that's an option and they can eviscerate them as well. I, I would hope they wouldn't. But when I was having trouble coming up before, then I'll, I'll turn it back over to Iris. Point is, this is precisely the time, and this is now when we and the the proponents of the space need to get louder, and actually need to to if we're still you know if people stick around, double down and, and give inspiration. Now's the time to fight back because we're just in the middle of this. This is just getting started. Uh, there's a million battles going on amongst agencies, courts, ideas, projects. It's a really new, exciting foundation. So to Ira's point, is it in the best interest of consumers to have their investments eviscerated? No, absolutely not. And the SEC should not do that. They very well may. But we as practitioners, again, like we can see it. We're not, no one, I don't think anyone is saying who's a, who's a practicing attorney that I've heard for the most part in the U.S. is saying no regulations required. Let it be a free for all. I don't think that's a, a widely prevalent point of view. But, but. Now's the time for us to like make sure that the that the regulations move in the correct pattern. And I think we have the ability to do that if we get very, very loud, especially over things like this. No, great points. And, you know, in addition to the investors losing, you also have the fact that this was pretty innovative technology. That was offering an opportunity to sort of create a blockchain version of YouTube with rewarding content producers with tokens and you've essentially stifled the growth of this technology and this innovation. And we've talked about this before. In doing so, you're, you're driving this innovation overseas because there are countries around the world that are much more crypto friendly, that are with open arms going to embrace this decision as an opportunity to draw all that talent and innovation overseas. And that is an unfortunate consequence. E. Rich, I'm going to have you come up. I do want to put a question out. And I think I'm going to direct this question to Birdnalls, who's actually read the briefing here. We had someone post, I haven't read the briefing for this case, but did library employ the, quote, essential ingredients, end quote, language that Ripple used in its MSJ? 
I'd like uh, I'd like you to think about that, Birdnalls, while while E. Rich speaks, if you could. Thanks. I was just curious, and I'm not sure who said the "get loud" comment, but like, as attorneys or people who are interested in seeing this space survive, um, how, how would how do how do you get loud? Like, what what does that look like from the perspective of practicing attorneys? or people that have relationships with other people in the space. Um, I just wanted to put that out there. And that was it. Also, I'm very sad if my Beanie Babies become a security. Like, that's going to be so sad. Just kidding on that last one. Yeah, so um, it, it, was, it was me. It was Josh. Uh, I, I, so I think there's a lot of ways to go about it. Granted, I talk entirely way too much about everything I like anyway. But, I mean, talking about what we do on a day-to-day basis more and more and more is really valuable. So yesterday, as an example, we did a young lawyers luncheon. I, I throw the luncheons for the Broward County Bar Young Lawyers, and it was on social media. We had judges there from the 4th DCA and all that kind of stuff. And we're talking about social media. And I know, because I made friends with you all here, and I get my, my best intellectual debates about the law happen here. And I had to bring that up, and I had to highlight to people that that happens. And uh, most of those lawyers have no idea. You know, I, I got to say to them, hey, there's an ongoing announcement from the biggest marketplace in the space that's shaking everything to its core on a day-to-day basis. And I go to a Twitter space to hear in them real speak time. directly in real time. And then another one, a day later, or two day, well, a couple of days later, whatever it is, and they're getting lambasted by these artists and just speechless because they don't know how to answer. I mean, I've never seen that before. It, I did study history in college, and it, it almost reminds me of, and this is a non-political thing. I'm just talking about movements. Right after World War I, when you had a lot of early socialist groups, and just people getting together to be political generally in all different kinds of organizations. It reminds me of that. I wasn't there at that time. But you have people getting passionate about the arts, about film, about the law, making sure people are protected and can grow with technology. So for me, it's, it's simple. There's, there's the day-to-day interactions. Just talk about it at, you know, at, to your comfort level. I'm not saying we all need to yell at everybody about it. I'm just going to do that regardless. Um, but talk to people generally. Um, put content out there. I mean, it doesn't have to be legal. We don't, you know, you are an individual. If you support the arts or you support the tech, generally speaking, and the positive aspects of it, of which there is way more evidence of positive uh, examples that I've seen at least than negative examples. We highlight those to people. We, we go to local governments. We talk to them about it. They spread it up the pipeline. Um, it's a big battle. I'm very optimistic and, and idealistic. I don't know that we'll ever be successful, but I think now is the time. And I think, you know, we as a group can, have, have kind of fostered that. And I think Carlo and Jenko is not here for helping that kind of get to this level. Excellent points. I mean, I think we can communicate in a way that's unique. We don't have to get up exclusively on Twitter spaces and and scream about these issues because we can actually file briefs. We can actually petition the court for permission to to make arguments on behalf of our cause. And I think that gives us a unique responsibility and a unique opportunity in this space. And you're absolutely right, Josh, because I've never in all my years of practicing experienced anything like this when it comes to the, BA, the you know, we go to bar meetings and we'll sit and, you know, we'll have a beer and somebody will present a CLE and we'll talk and we'll do that maybe once a month. Um, this is every day and this is instantaneous town square. And I think this is making us all much stronger and much better 
And I think we are here for an amazing revolution and we get to be here and experience it. And we're actually creating it. I really think that these conversations we have that get re-listened to by people and get circulated are really redefining the conversation. And it, it's a very impactful way. Um, I want to circle back to Birdnalls if he has any thoughts on that question that was posted, and I'd love to hear from Nir. Yeah, so the ripple essential ingredients argument um, was what they kind of base lots of their MSJ around, and it's uh, going back to blue sky laws, um, which predate uh, federal securities laws, and essentially they were saying that um, that under Howie and everything since then, we kind of lost the plot and that these securities laws are based off of, uh, of state uh, blue sky laws, which predate them. Um, and the definition of investment contract under those blue sky laws require some kind of ongoing obligations um, from the developer or from the seller. Um, so in the case of stocks, the ongoing obligation to uh, maximize shareholder value in the case of the Howie case, the ongoing obligation to take care of the orange gloves, the beaver case, the ongoing obligation regarding uh, the, the ranching uh, ability of those. So that was what they said when essential ingredients and the SEC uh, thoroughly rebuts this and says that the essential ingredients isn't anywhere a part of Howie and that, yeah, it might have been based off of blue sky laws, um, but that's not what federal law is. And uh, no case has really had these essential ingredients uh, argument uh, that they've ruled in that favor under federal law. So to an extent, yes, it was it was handled in library because library said specifically we are not like we have disclaimers that these are not to be bought as investments and that these are not these are not intended to be securities and that um, do not buy these investments. And the court basically said that, no, it doesn't. We, we don't care about when you make statements like that. Um, we we look at the economic realities. It's, it's kind of funny that they look at statements when they say, uh, yes, this is a valuable thing to hold as, as, as something that's dispositive. But when they say, no, do not hold this. This isn't intended to be a valuable investment. The court's like, yeah, no, we don't really give a fuck about that. We're looking at the whole thing. So it is kind of talking out both sides of the mouth. But that's a long-winded answer to say that, yes, it was handled to an extent as far as essential ingredients, but only the fact that the disclaimers that library provided are not dispositive on the issue. Thank you, Birdnalls. Um, outstanding. I knew if I I knew if I presented that to you because you've you've done a pretty deep dive on Ripple that you would uh, that you'd have a spot on answer. So I appreciate that. Near hey, Carl. And, yeah. Uh, before you go to Near, can I just jump in real quick? Yes, sir. One other point I was just saying. It is a little uh, annoying or talking out of both sides of their mouth that they would not um, give weight to like official statements and official um, things that they had said about investments and don't buy this if it's investment. Yet they quote in the opinion or in the order, you know, a commentary from a community manager answering someone on Reddit, <laughs> you know, that's asking about the token. That part is, again, very frustrating, but it just shows um, projects that are doing this is, you know, always be careful what you're telling people, even on a random Reddit board, because, the government pulled that up and then that made the order and obviously it was persuasive to the court apparently. 
Very good points. And the disclaimers seem to be of no value in the analysis because the disclaimers are probably, in, in the court's view, it seems uh, largely irrelevant and sort of window dressing, but it's the economic realities of the transaction that they're more focused on. Nir, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Carlo? Excellent. Thank you for joining us. No, thank you. This is really great. As always, a fantastic panel um, and really, really interesting discussion. As you know, I am an IP attorney. <laughs> this is not uh, my area, but uh, I was really curious when I was trying to read through this and, and make some sense of it. I was thinking about some of the differences between you know fungible versus non-fungible tokens and how there might be some arguments that you know, it applies differently in a non-fungible context. Um, and one of the things that kind of stuck out to me was um, the fact that they retained uh, tokens for themselves was signaling, you know, more towards the security. And I was curious to hear from some of our uh, experts up here what they think about that and to the extent that might be applicable in a non-fungible context for NFT project holders that may wish to hold tokens. We've discussed it a bit and we've seen both sides of it. There's arguments to make that it's essentially irrelevant because it's, it's a predictable thing that a project would hold back tokens. But there's also been Ira's take on this, that the holding back of the tokens is also um, is also essentially, and I don't want to speak for you, Ira, but it's it's sort of a crowdfunding effort to to bring increased liquidity out there as a landing strip to continue to secure funding. So I think there's two sides to the argument, and as as our friend Ira likes to say, you can argue both sides. Um, it you know it's it's interesting. I think this case was more hung up on the realities of the joint, um, the, the joint venture or the joint enterprise aspects of Howie. And I think that they talked about the, the retention of tokens in passing. And I know we debated this. Jeff, this is actually a perfect opportunity to bring you up because you and I sort of debated this and you, you gave me uh, some great feedback on this. So I want to bring you up and get your thoughts on this one. And as we bring up, if you've got something to add, Ira, I don't want to put your comments uh, or uh, mischaracterize no, no. your comments. I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and ride the Carlo wave uh, as we're waiting for other folks to come up. And that is that, um, you know, I've seen this so many times in nerd law, Web two especially with search engines. You know, you start off a search engine and it evolves, and then all of a sudden it starts getting sued for stuff. And then you start wondering if you create the most perfect search engine <clears throat> in the world and it's automated and it starts accumulating an index and now all of a sudden it starts getting sued for like linking to things. You, the same question, and then, you know, where did you go wrong or, or where, where could you have fixed it? The question that I would love folks to address is the one that we've seen in Twitter, which is, hey, how do we go ahead and do this? How do we, how can we make the perfect token, the perfect altcoin from scratch 
that would fit through all the different crevices and cracks in these arguments. Where do we start with perfection before we start moving away from it? Could anyone think of like the perfect way for folks to go ahead and make a token that with that would withstand scrutiny and, and in, in fact pass muster? And that's kind of like where it is. And then if we start from there, if we can't, then we have to ask when we're going ahead and promulgating more regulations, can you go ahead and make a safe harbor so we know the recipe for doing that? And then the regulations become more like safe harbors than anything else. It would seem, I want to hear from Jeff and I want to bring up Pelts and then I want to hear in rapid fire succession from Texas Blockchain. But it would seem to me, Ira, that I think Bitcoin is probably the, the quintessential perfect token because it's decentralized across the board. Um, arguments could be made both ways, but I think all the language, all the hype, all the promotion that comes with these ICOs, I think is the most damning thing that is being used against all of these uh, coin offerings. You didn't have that with Bitcoin because Bitcoin was a white paper that was dropped and just a technology that sort of sprang out of the internet spontaneously and drew mass adoption and was completely decentralized from day one. So I think if I had to answer that question, the perfect one, the template, which is really impossible to, reg to, to, to replicate, is Bitcoin. Jeff, I want to give you a chance to talk about all of this, and then I want to hear from our friend Peltz and then Texas Blockchain. Sure. Uh, can you guys hear me okay? Yes, sir. Welcome. Awesome. Um, so I actually wanted to address a portion of, I think, Nir's question earlier, the possible difference between NFT and, and F-Fungible token in the security sense, and I don't think it matters. And my quick fits into a tiny Twitter space reaction to that is, you know, you could even go back to the original fact pattern of Howie, you are buying a specific, you know, orange tree or plot of the orange grove. Uh, you can literally go walk around that specific one that you are buying uh, rather than buying the, you know, equity in the orange grove company. That was the distinction there and why we have the Howie test. So, you know, that was very, non-fungible in the sense of I own this specific orange tree rather than I own the specific JPEG. So I don't know if that distinguishes, you know, NFTs from fungible tokens in a meaningful way in the security sense, at least, uh, whether it's a, you know, a collectible or a good and all those other conversations is something that we can have a whole nother spaces about, <clears throat> but I just wanted to address that. Um, and then to the point about Bitcoin being, you know, the perfect model, you know, if I'm just reading the few paragraphs that matter in the opinion yesterday, um, wow, it was only yesterday. Um, the, you know, I think Bitcoin is only not a security because it was a victim of the time. You can't tell me that a bunch of the people who were early adopters of Bitcoin wouldn't have also been community managers answering questions on Reddit and making promises to people about how awesome it is. You know, I, I think the way we talk about projects now is just the way we talk about projects now. So it's, you can't 
not only is it is it incredibly difficult to replicate the Bitcoin model, I don't even know if it's possible at, at this point. Uh, so there needs to be something else. And, you know, keeping Satoshi, keeping some, that's apparently a problem now. And, you know, I'm one of the more pessimistic minds in the group when it comes to this stuff. And, and I generally lean towards pretty much everything is probably a security if you look hard enough and if you want to find it rather than looking in the other direction. I think that actually makes you a, a decent lawyer when you're when you're coming from that angle. But that to me, and I will continue to beat this drum, we need new laws, to Ira's point. is the, I don't think the perfect fit through all the eye holes in the needle token exists at this point, um, unless you're using foreign jurisdictions. But uh, we need regulations that will allow that to happen because this is a new technology and a new concept until that's recognized we're going to get people in new hampshire that may or may not even have a wallet making decisions on our behalf and sadly taking forever to drag through the appellate process and threatening the continued growth of this sector thank you Jeff. well the, the sector is going to continue to grow it's whether or not it happens on u.s soil or not exactly exactly yeah, but but even, even with the U.S. soil argument, and again, argue both ways, on the civil side, it seems like the jurisdiction is really, really easy, particularly when we see some of these techniques that are being used about traffic and nodes. So just grabbing somebody in, even if they say, hey, we're in the Cayman Islands, neener, neener, that's usually not going to work. Uh, so so that's that's kind of the problem with that. To that point, I, I, this isn't my own take. I can't remember who said it. It might have been Gabe. But uh, to avoid uh, U.S. regulations, uh, everybody in the space might have to KYC everyone just so that they are not servicing the U.S. Uh, so that would be a very interesting turn of events. Oh, that's painful. I need to update the soundboard on this Twitter space to include Ira's voice saying neener, neener. Peltz, welcome in the house. How are you, my friend? GM, Carlo. I'm. I'm. <laughs> today, I think might be the the craziest crypto day we've had in uh, I don't know a, a few years, maybe maybe ever. So, um, or at least the last twenty four hours feels that way. Um, yeah, I, I agree with a lot with what you and and Jeff and and Myra uh, were just saying. Um, I don't know that I can add too much more to that. Right? It it does feel like. Uh, you know, the, the the walls are closing in, or at least uh, m meshing up with uh, Chairman Gensler's view that if you look at you know ten thousand tokens, uh, the vast majority of, of those from from his perspective are securities, right? So you're seeing that play out in the courts. I don't know if we learned anything we we didn't already uh, know, um, but it, it's it's certainly backing up what was suspected, right? So uh, not not a great um, you know. 24 hours for I think the the legitimate business uh, businesses built around crypto in in the United States and you know I think it's incumbent on all of us to to um, take a breath and and try and contextualize all this so we can figure out how we can can build and grow out of this because um, I, I agree someone just said right the the laws uh, don't look uh, very uh, supportive for this activity happening on U.S. soil. And I agree that just saying Neener Neener, we're, we're a, a Cayman Island Foundation now is, 
is the is the right look either. And if, it, if it, that is the right outcome, then um, you know all this business is going to leave the U.S. and that's not in anyone's interest. That's not in the interest of um, of the government. It's not in the interest of consumers. It's not in the interest of, of obviously the, the legal minds here today. So that can't be the right outcome, and we have to fight to make sure it's not right. Very you well know, said, Carla. Let me let me ask you this, and everyone this, because we're here to. It's almost like Web three lawyers anonymous. Because let me tell you what I'm starting to sense. Um, this is theoretical if anybody listens to this one day. <laughs> but we live, many of us, in two worlds. We love Web3. We love the ethical hackish part of it. We love the innovation. But we also live in a compliance-oriented situation. We have publicly traded companies, some of us as our clients, the big question right now that this is starting to move towards, and we've had this already, but it's starting to get more and more there, is how do we guide our compliance-oriented publicly traded companies or those who want to go public on fiduciary duties and obligations in dealing with Web3? Are we now more risk-adverse for them in the sense that we're on notice of this district court opinion. And now as I forgot who said it, maybe Texas, you said it is the chilling effect going to be starting, unfortunately with us, because it may well be considered a breach of fiduciary duty. If publicly traded companies start interacting on NFT drops or coins, or uh, I don't want to single out ApeCoin, but any altcoin uh, or our VC clients, we have a really hard dilemma in how we help guide our clients who have to make the risk-benefit decisions right now, even in light of this district court opinion. Yeah, it's gotten complicated. I'm gonna. That's a perfect segue to Texas blockchain. I know we're going a little over time, but I do want to hear from Katon Crypto to close it out. But Texas blockchain, you want to address Ira's concern? Yeah. Well, I mean, as you often say, Ira, you know or maybe it's Carlo who says it. I mean, one of our primary uh, functions as attorneys is to mitigate risk, right? So, I mean, it's something that we would have to tell our clients about if we're going to give them a, a full uh, a full view of the landscape. Um, and it very well might change their calculus, right? I mean, especially if they're seeking to mitigate regulatory risk. And within the vein of, seek, of, of uh, mitigating regulatory risk, to Nier's question about whether or not you have a PFP project holding back tokens and what that would mean from a regulatory standpoint. Um, you know, I think you could obviously argue it both ways, but I don't think anyone here would disagree with how the SEC would try to argue it. And that goes right back to the regulatory risk. Even if you went against the SS, against the SEC, it's going to be really, really expensive. And it's going to cause a lot of people to hesitate again with that chilling effect. Um, to the point of, I forget who was saying, I think Josh about, you know, being loud. I mean, we can be loud, but we can also start small, right? Today's election day. So, you know, whenever that settles, call your, uh, your state rep, call your Senator, um, call your Congressman, your Congresswoman, call, uh, your U S Senator, get to know the person in their office who's dealing with these regulations 
and offer yourself up as a resource. Uh, you know, members, they listen to their constituents. We are everyone's constituents. So, you know, make that contact. The last thing I want to say is, um, you, you know, I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to join today. I'm really glad that I did because this has been a great discussion. And I got to hear Iris say neener neener. That's always a good day. Thank you, Texas Blockchain. Um, Katon, I want to hear from you and uh, get your thoughts on this. You, you, you're the one who posed that question that Birdnalls was kind enough to answer. So what are your thoughts on this conversation and, and what this does for digital assets? Sure. Thanks, Carlo. Um, I actually have a question, uh, and, and Birdnalls, you might be the right person to answer this. A um, little bit of a broader question. So in, in Munchie and, and, and in Telegram and, and the, in the SEC's complaint in, in Ripple, it, it, the SEC really takes this position that the underlying asset is a security itself, and there, there's a good bit of literature on this. Um, but, but is that a position the SEC took in, in library? And like just, just reading the library decision and reading – you know, the SEC's brief, even in, in, in Ripple, they seem to focus on, you know, the language is a lot about the offer and sale. The offer and sale seems to be the focus as opposed to the underlying asset itself. So can you tell from the SEC, is the SEC stance still that tokens are securities or is it the, the overall asset? Yeah, so that just wasn't an issue in this case because they already conceded the, that this was a uh, that this was a investment of money, and that this was a common enterprise. So they didn't, unlike in Ripple, where they say that, um, all right, well, you have to you have to show every single sale was a sale of securities because securities are a it's a it's a transaction by transaction analysis. Um, so if even if uh, XRP the XRP that was initially sold. Um, was a security that these secondary sales and individuals continuing to sell these um, aren't aren't subject to securities laws um, and and the SEC's thing saying well we weren't going we probably wouldn't go after individuals because they probably fit under an exception so don't worry about that that they were kind of forced to say in the Ripple case that wasn't ever something they were forced to say in this case so they didn't really go into the uh, the tokens all tokens in any sale the tokens are securities because they didn't have to they just they 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 the uh, library conceded that if they found that there was a uh, uh, the, uh, it, the reliance on uh, entrepreneurial efforts of others, and rejected the utility aspect of the token that that they that the SEC already won on that. So, awesome, thank you. Well, Birdnalls, thank you. You're you're always a great resource when it comes to answering those tough questions because you do a lot of in-depth analysis of these cases, and you're you're able to uniquely synthesize them in a way that, that frankly brings a lot of utility to these spaces. So thank you for that. Um, great conversation today. Uh, I think Jenko is going to want to listen back to this one. I think there's going to be some great clips coming out of this one that we're going to be sharing with the community um, because there was some very important points that were raised here today. So to everyone who came up and spoke, thank you so much. To everyone out there, give a follow to the lawyers that are up here in the house, because as you can see, they are a very important part of the conversation, and it's a conversation that is evolving so fast. Um, we'll be back at it again tomorrow, and we'll see what new developments. Um, interesting, this FTX thing as it's unfolding, 
was taking a look at some things in the Twitter feed, and apparently Solana took about a 25% dip today. Not, no financial advice here, but just it's, it's an interesting observation, and it's, 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 it's so important to look and see how news moves this very fragile ecosystem of ours. So I'm glad that we're all here to have these conversations and, and unpack these things and put them in proper perspective. And it will remain to be seen on appeal whether this case is a one-off or whether this is going to have a major, pardon the pun, ripple effect for the space. Thank you to everyone who joined today. And I appreciate your input. And we will do it again soon. Have a great day, everyone.